Good. Well, welcome everybody. Um, really excited to have the opportunity to do what feels like a little bit of a mini internal launch um, of a report that we've all been, that many of us in IDS have been working on over the last year, year and a half. Um, that strikes absolutely at the heart of, of both one of the really key issues and challenges of our day around inequalities and also um, an area of work that's at the heart of, of IDS strategy and the things we're trying to think about around reducing inequalities. Um, so what we're going to talk about, and this is a bit of a joint seminar, so <coughs> I'm going to be kicking off, then handing over to John Gaventa, who was one of the, the, the co-editors of this report, but also very much involved in the editorial team are Bruno Martirano, who's here, and Patricia Justino, who's unfortunately sick and who's not. But we've also, this was a report, as I'll make clear, that um, involved more than 20 people from IDS, um, some of whom may be here, others of whom are not. And I'm just going to reel them out because this is very much a joint effort. So um, it's myself, Patricia, John and Bruno, Richard Jolly, Annie Wilkinson, Naomi Hossein, Jing Gu, Alex Shanklin, Jerry Bloom, Stephanie Griffith-Jones, one of our associates, Mick Moore, Sahela Nasneen, who's going to be speaking in a bit, Michael Lipton, one of our emeritus fellows, Keaty Rowland, Rachel Sabatis-Wheeler, um, Stephen, Ben Ramalingham, and Kevin Hernandez. So this has been a big IDS effort. So what is it? It involves, as well as the IDS people I just mentioned, um, a full total of 107 workers who come from more than 40 countries. And the idea is that this lays out um, both a set of key and cutting-edge social science contributions on inequalities and also a research agenda for the next 10 years. Um, this is, the, as I'll say in a minute, the in, this has been prepared by the International Social Science Council, which is the international membership organisation for all social sciences. Um, but for the first time, ISSC invited in um, as an academic partner and um, identified IDS to work, to work with him. And then UNESCO were involved in co-publishing. Um, what the World Social Science Reports do is every three years to provide this kind of overview and agenda setting um, set of discussions around a key big issue. So this is the third that there's been. Um, first in 2010, looked at, at knowledge and actually knowledge inequalities in many ways. Um, 2013, there was a focus on environment and environmental sustainability. And this one focuses, as we will see, on inequalities. And this was really the process through which it emerged. So the whole process started with ISSC. We decided in 2013 that their next report would pick up on inequality as a challenge. Um, and the Scientific Advisory Committee of ISSC, when it met, um, identified that they would like this time to work with an intellectual partner. Um, and so we signed an agreement with IDS. We identified an editorial team here um, that would represent different social science disciplines. So I came into this with a sort of anthropology hat on, John with a political science and political sociology background, um, and Patricia Justino and Bruno, who brought political science and economics very importantly. We also drew in um, contributions and kind of broader intellectual inputs from the World Social Science Forum, which um, the ISSC hosts every couple of years, and this one was in Durban in South Africa. 
And on the basis of all of this, um, we spent a very busy year commissioning articles and little short postcard contributions. We had some internal, very useful discussions early on within ABS about the overall framing, the kind of contributions we might be looking for. And that led both to the contributions from here, as well as many good ideas for um, academics, but also practitioners across the world who have interesting perspectives to bring to bear. Um, and then we had a long and complex process of editing and peer reviewing. And this report was finally published and launched um, a couple of weeks ago in Stockholm at the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. And there are a number of other launches planned, um, including in Oslo next week, and in India later in the year, and in Paris in between, and many others too. So, why a report on inequality and <coughs> Well, the context, I think, is really obvious. We're at a moment when inequality <coughs> is looming really large in the minds of publics, media, governments, businesses, civil society. Why is that? Partly because people are protesting against it. So this is a picture from the Arab Springs of a few years ago, but we've had other protests, whether it's Occupy Wall Street or more local ones. We've also seen... Um, the publication of some really big tomes and contributions on inequality, which have become bestsellers, whether we're talking about Thomas Piketty's Capitalism in the 21st Century um, from 2014, Atkinson's book, Joseph Stieglitz's books. I think the, the fact that these have become bestsellers tells us something about the, the popular attention around inequality, as well as simply being a matter of, of, of academic subject matter. And I think we saw why that matters very clearly um, in the, the, the Brexit referendum earlier, earlier this year, when quite a lot of the analysis and commentary have seen that vote to leave the EU as in part a protest vote by people who felt disenfranchised both by economic globalisation and by um, a politics, an elite politics centred on elite government in Whitehall. So something we could talk about more, but... Inequality has become a topic of our time. And of course, it's also centrally there in international policy making and in what governments are supposed to be doing. So um, the Sustainable Development Goals, the Global Goals so-called signed last September, just over a year ago, include as goal 10 of 17, reduced inequalities. That was not part of the MPD framework. It's the first time we've really seen a commitment on the international stage to this degree. And then the SDGs also have this cross-cutting um, principle that no one should be left behind, which again is very much about gaps and, and redressing inequalities as much as overall outcomes around poverty. Um, but why, if there's all this attention and all these, these big best-selling contributions, do we need a new report? Well, um, what we and ISSC felt, and I think this has come through very much in the process of putting the report together, is first of all, there's a need to look beyond the economic. <coughs> Most of these big contributions are focused on inequalities of income and assets. We're saying that actually there are multiple dimensions of inequality that we need to understand better and look at. The second um, is to look at what's happening around inequality globally, including in the less studied regions and places. Much of the recent focus has been about Europe and North America, something we'll come back to, to later. Um, this report has made a major effort, but only a partial effort, again, as we'll talk about later, only partially successful, um, to bring in research and perspectives from those less heard about countries, places, regions, 
people <coughs> have got things to say. We also wanted to focus not just on trends, but actually on why inequalities matter, the consequences, um, and to move from looking at inequalities to what can be done about them. So there's a lot in this report which is about what we call pathways to a just world, pathways to reduce inequalities. Um, because of these other things, this contribution is absolutely multidisciplinary, and overtly so, bringing in contributions from political science, anthropology, sociology, science and technology studies, participatory research, and <coughs> practitioners. Um, and finally, it's very much about what a new agenda should look like, like all the other ISSE reports are. Um, so this is what, what we set out to do. So what did we find? What are some of the key messages? Um, so the report brings together new evidence. Um, it, wasn't an empiric it didn't involve a new set of empirical studies, but it brought together some of the cutting-edge contributors. So some of the key messages are, firstly, inequalities matter, they're challenging because they're rising. So we see dramatic statistics um, like this, this is from the Oxfam 2016 report, which shows that um, 62 individuals in the world now are as wealthy as the bottom 50% of humanity. Um, this is really about economic but also political power being concentrated in the hands of an elite globally. Um, interestingly, um, taken globally, that is thinking about the entire global population and living standards, the last um, decade, a couple of decades, has actually seen a decline in global economic inequality. Um, but that's been largely driven by big reductions in poverty and rises in living standards in, in a couple of really big countries, high population countries, China and India especially. And global inequality statistics, Bruno will have to, if one wants to ask about them, Bruno will have to answer, are constructed from a combination of inter-country inequalities and within-country inequalities. And when one does that, you end up with a reduction. Um, but this look, trend that kind of looks favorable globally um, could actually be reversed if one gets inequalities in <coughs> countries continuing to increase as fast as they are. So what is happening within countries? Well, we're seeing big rises. So this is income um, according to the Gini coefficient, standard economic measure of inequality. Um, inequality is rising both in the old industrialized countries at the top, but also um, in emerging countries, middle-income countries, where often the, the data are poorer and the time series are shorter, um, but we're still seeing generally rises. Not completely, so Brazil saw some declines in inequality over the last decade now being reversed a bit. South Africa, which has seen declining inequality in recent years, nevertheless still tops the list for the highest level of economic inequality amongst all countries globally. Trends, though, aren't just one way. Um, so the report has quite a lot of country-specific um, analyses, um, which look at some places where countries have succeeded in either reducing or at least halting rises in inequality um, in recent decades. Um, this aggregates this up to look at what's happening in Latin America, um, where you've seen some overall declines, um, but actually some of those are turning around. So Brazil, which was very successful in the first decade, is now seeing an upturn in inequalities. And sub-Saharan Africa, um, where we've had some declines, but again, upturns. 
But the sub-Saharan African story is very, very interesting because for a start we've got problems with data, but we've also got a real concentration of poverty and therefore being at the bottom of global inequality in a number of sub-Saharan African countries. Um, and this is a very salutary message um, that comes through in Branka Milanovic's piece in the report, which really um, suggests that if, if sub-Saharan African countries are not a focus of development efforts over the next period, we, we potentially could see big rises in global inequality and, and further um, increases in poverty in Africa. So that's the economic, but the key point about this report um, is that we're suggesting that we're not just talking about inequality, but about inequalities. <coughs> they are multiple. And we identify and explore in the report um, seven dimensions of inequality. So there is the economic, but there's also political um, inequalities in, in voice and access to power and abilities to influence decisions. We talk about social inequalities um, around opportunities and outcomes in health and education and also in the gender inequalities that often cross-cut those. The report talks about cultural inequalities, which is a, a, a label for those horizontal group-based inequalities associated with identities and ethnicities, constructed and experienced in different ways, but nevertheless um, driving big differences in inequalities in, in, in access and opportunities. We talk about environmental inequalities in access to and control over natural resources, vulnerability and experiences of pollution and environmental disasters, and inequalities in agency to respond and adapt. We talk about spatial inequalities, whether within, whether between urban and rural areas, within cities, places that are neglected, um, inequalities that play out on geographical bonds. And we talk about knowledge inequalities, um, divides and differences in people's ability to, to have access to useful knowledge and for their own knowledge and perspectives to be legitimised and taken seriously. Um, and the point is that these multiple inequalities interact um, and these are just a few of the kind of instances that emerge, emerge in, in the report. So what we see, for instance, as we saw in the Brexit situation, was interactions of economic inequality and political inequality, driving a sense of disenfranchisement, which had, had a big impact on what happened in, in that referendum. Um, we have interactions sometimes between knowledge inequalities and social inequalities, this is an example from one of the articles that looked at, at education um, and, and the relationship between <coughs> school attendance and, and education and then economic and social opportunities. Um, there are several pieces in the report that look at the interactions between environmental inequalities, economic inequalities and social inequalities, showing that inequality and sustainability are really deeply interlinked. And many pieces look at the enduring forms of inequality that we see associated with identities, ethnicity, caste, um, dimensions of culture, um, and the ways that gender often pervades all of those. This draws out the notion of intersecting inequalities, and, and there's a very nice piece in the report by Nala Kabir which, which really drives mm. this home. Um, so, for instance, often those at the intersecting inequalities compound themselves for particular people and groups. 
So one, one might get people who are living in a vulnerable area of the city experiencing spatial experience and spatial inequalities who are marginalised <coughs> also by low income, by economic inequalities, by sometimes by, by ethnic differences, maybe because they're immigrants and they're marginalised. They, they have social inequalities through limited access to services and sometimes gender differences compound <coughs> all of those. So um, the ways that intersecting inequalities drive spirals of discrimination um, and, and, and drive down marginalisation very much within that idea of leave no one behind. This is the creati creation of the left behinds is a very big concern. Um, actually, I'm going to do this the other way around. So why do inequalities matter in this sense? Well, the first reason is because they're unjust. There's a moral dimension, an ethical dimension to this. Inequalities of this kind of level and multiplicity, I think one can suggest, have no place in a world that, <coughs> we would like to be fair. Um, but we also find that inequalities have consequences and have detrimental effects in a more sort of instrumental way on all sorts of other societal goals. Um, and therefore, dealing with inequalities is going to be essential if some of these other priorities are, are to be met. Um, so just take some examples. High inequality, rising inequalities impact on growth and particularly on the ability of that growth to address poverty. And there's a piece by Ravi Campbell that's very effective in, in showing that. Inequalities affect our ability to respond to crises. The piece by Annie Wilkinson in the report, which looks at the way that management of the Ebola outbreak was deeply hindered by the lack of trust that had emerged from political and economic inequalities between health <coughs> workers and populations, between elites and people in rural areas and within communities, um, as it were, during the response, made it much less effective. Um, we also see ways that rising inequalities um, hinder our effect to tackle environmental problems and sustainability, whether that's because affluence depends on unsustainable use of resources and that those at the top are able to pollute with impunity, or whether it's about the ways that, that people at the bottom are forced by low income, by lack of access to resources <coughs> power, to degrade the environments they depend on. There are pieces in here about um, the way inequalities are affecting health and nutrition. Naomi Hussain, for instance, an ideas fellow, looks at this phenomenon of where you're getting inequalities producing both chronic undernourishment and rising obesity. And then there are several pieces about the relationship between inequality and conflict particularly these horizontal, group-based inequalities, often along ethnic lines, spatial lines, access to power, um, that can actually spur conflict and make the creation of, of peaceful settlements very, very difficult. Um, so, coming back to the sustainable development goals, we suggest in the report, this is very nice the graphic that, that John put together, that actually that goal 10 in the middle, that reducing inequality, is fundamental to pretty much all the others. Um, and if we don't tackle that one, um, the ability to address um, pretty well all the others is going to be, is, is going to be very, very hard. So um, this is this just sort of lists some of the particular goals and there's more analysis of that. Yeah. Um, 
But does it have to be this way? I'm now going to turn over to John to talk about anything that can be done and what might be done. Great, thanks. And first of all, let me just say this was a very exciting project to, to work on. Uh, we've just gotten in the hard copy. There's only one, like Melissa said. There's lots more on just, the way. <laughs> I just gone through it, and they've done a really nice job. But for students, you know, there's, there's contributors here, 75 contributions that, Melissa said, link inequality to almost any other issue that you could possibly be working on in development studies. So it's also a great resource. And very, I think it's fair to say, as far as we know, the most diverse collection anywhere in the world yeah. now. Yeah. Meaning multiple voices, multiple disciplines from multiple places on this common problem. Yeah. So it's a great yeah. privilege to, to work on a team here and the global, global team as well. But like Melissa said, that the, the, child, the report, the title, the subtitle is, is kind of a double meaning. It's challenging inequalities. That is, inequalities are challenging, but how do we challenge inequalities? And then the subtitle is Pathways to a More Just World, or to a Just World. And we begin to find a really big gap in the literature, because while, while there's a huge amount of effort now to study inequality, and we can understand particularly inequality and its patterns and its trends, there's far less literature thinking about what we call inequality futures. What does the future of inequality look like? And what are the different choices and pathways we can take to ensure that that future is actually towards a more positive direction. We did manage to get a few speculators, uh, futurists, to think about the future of inequality. And there's some very interesting essays in here that talk about what happens in a world of robotics to jobs and inequality. What happens in a world of greater environmental destruction? What happens in a world of greater conflict? How is that going to affect inequality? But then we really turn our task to this question of what can be done about inequality? What are What do we know about the pathways towards building a more just world. And one of the key messages which we point out here is that something can be done. In fact, like Melissa showed in the, in the trends and the slides, there's overall global trends, but they're always positive deviants. They're exceptions. And so part of what we do, there's a wonderful piece by Duncan Green in the piece that looks at countries that have managed to turn around inequality in the last few decades and ask what were the drivers, what made that possible. Mm. And we began to see that the forces that drove the reduction in inequality, like always, were a combination. First is there are policies and measures that can make a difference. Uh, Stiglitz's work is very clear on this. In, inequality is not immutable. Something can be done about it with the right collection of policies. And we have contributions that look at policies having to do with work and labor, with trade and aid, with redistribution, such as a great piece by Michael Lipton on, on land redistribution, um, on social policy, um, and on inclusive governance. You'll hear about that in a moment from Sopella. So something can be done at a policy and rule-making measure, and there's many, many examples of where those policies have made a difference. But we also point out that those policies don't emerge out of the vacuum. Those policies usually emerge out of some sort of social and political action and, and social movements that, that are, in fact, rising around the world uh, on, in the area of inequality. There's a very interesting short piece there by Isabel Ortiz that documents the rise of protest in the last few years around the world. And for the first time in recent history, of the 843 protests in the last, how many years, Bruno? Three, four, five years? Over half of them have to do with economic inequalities broadly defined. 
whereas previously they might have been to do more with human rights or, or other kinds of ills. So we do know that there's a massive form, massive forms of social and political action that are driving a demand for reform from policymakers. And where these come together is always in change, where the, 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 the where there's political will on the inside and high political pressure from the outside, that and we see coherent cross-cutting programs coming together, we can actually show some sort of difference. But those differences, those strategies, those policies also have to recognize, as Melissa said, the embeddedness in particular cultures, in particular histories, and particularities of inequality in different parts of the world. The problem isn't experienced by the same groups in the same ways in every place in the world, so there's not, nor is there ever usually, a single recipe, one size fits all. And we point in the we point here through a number of case studies in some of this. For instance, while in the United States we've had laws about equality around racial inequality, racial equality, the rise in violence against ethnic minorities is huge. The ongoing discrimination in the United States around health and justice uh, is is significant there. Um, and so you can't really talk about equality in the United States without actually talking also about race. In Africa, we have a couple of very important um, articles that look at the relationship of inequality to the resource grabs, land and minerals. And you can't really talk about inequality without also talking about who owns the land, who owns the minerals, who's controlling the water, and what are the grabs happening there. In the Western countries, we talk about the decline of the middle classes and some of the some of the graphs are really very important because while, as Melissa said, while, while in some cases, India and China, um, you, see the, you see a growth of the middle class. The data is very, very strong, but in Western countries, middle-income, high-income countries, there has been a stagnation of the lower middle class and working class over the last 20 years, and that stagnation is reflecting the kinds of protest voting and frustrations that we see. So the dynamics of inequality depend very much upon place, and we have to understand those dynamics better in order to drive the solutions for a more, for a more fair world. In addition to the policies, like I said, there's any number of examples of, of social action, collective and political, collective political action, and these range. On the one hand, we see the examples of lots of new alliances emerging. Inequality, the report shows, isn't just bad for those at the bottom of the scale. Actually, inequality is bad for business, inequality is bad for governments, inequality is bad for lots of people. And as a result of that, we're seeing very interesting new coalitions emerge that cut across class and difference um, in order to bring about change. An example here is a new patient's bill of, of, of rights in, in, in Egypt that passed a health insurance law that really was a, a multi-class alliance dealing with health inequalities. We see a lot of new forms of social and political action that are deliberately linking cross issues. So that is, we can't just deal anymore with, with one form of injustice without also linking it to the others. So new forms of mobilization that combine action on social, political, economic, and environmental issues. And the importance, we've had to look at this, of making the economic central to some of these, some of these actions. And we have, I wrote with a colleague in, in, uh, in South Africa, a piece on how economic inequality translates to political inequalities and how in turn that means requires a new kind of political organizing and political mobilization. We say lots of examples around the world of small-scale efforts to create alternative economies. 
ways that people can get control over local finance through microfinance or creating small alternatives. And we, 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 we argue that these are oftentimes, while they're still small, are underemphasized because they actually are very important strategic starting points. And Melissa writes very nicely that we can create enough small footpaths gradually they can become larger pathways and gradually we can expand the pathways to some sort of larger structural, structural change. And we also look overall at the importance of political participation in national programs such as the Zero Hunger Campaign in Brazil. So different forms of social and political action combined with these different forms and, of, of policy in particular places to make, to make a difference. Now, the, the final chapter we focus on, really what's most important to us here at IDS in a way, is the question of knowledge inequalities on inequality. And as Melissa said, we really wanted to talk about seven forms of inequalities, one of which was very important was knowledge. And, and this, what we found there was actually quite striking. On the one hand, in the global social science professions, um, in the published literature, we did a, a bibliometric study in the last 20 years, we see a growth in scholarly work on the economy, or particularly on inequality. Um, the ec economics leads it, but education actually is very high, so is sociology, political science, gender studies, and so on. So there's an overall growth in the production of what I call official social science published knowledge on inequality. But where is that growth coming from? And this takes us to the question of the inequalities of knowledge about inequality. So if you look at this staggering slide, 80% of the published work on inequality in the last 20 years has come from North America and Western Europe. 80%. 50% of all the articles have come from two countries, the UK and the United States. And this is all languages, not just English? Well, it has a, we asked that, we pursued it, in the way it's, it's come from the Social Science Index in various measures, and it's, it has, does have a, an English bias, but it does take on board some other yeah. languages. So yes, it is a bias there. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, a, sorry? Is it measured by institutions or nationalities? It's measured nationality by where the researcher is based, not yeah. by, not by no, their nationality. Yeah. Not, yeah. It's measured by the, their home institution. Okay, and there's lots of detail in the measurement when you come to, come to the report. But the really shocking thing that is shown here is that we're trying, we are devising global strategies to deal with inequality on the basis of a very partial perspective of whose inequalities count, who measures inequality, who defines inequality, who says what's most important. And if you have in the Arab states, uh, South, and, South and West Asia, Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, both the poorest countries and those places that are least able to produce social science knowledge on what to do about the problem and even how to define it, then we have a huge knowledge inequality which we believe sustains and feeds um, the other inequalities. So we end the report by saying, therefore, what is our challenge as researchers? What's the research agenda here? And this applies to IDS as, as, much, as much as any other institutions. First is we need huge support for knowledge production about inequalities and social exclusion in those places most affected. In those countries, with those groups who are at the sharp end of experiencing inequality. Secondly, we need to improve our ability to assess, measure, and compare the dimensions of inequality over time and across the world. The databases right now are simply very imperfect. And it's very hard to come up with any meaningful conclusions about what inequality looks like in a very poor African country compared to someplace else because 
you don't have the data. We need to deepen our understanding of the diverse experiences of inequality. We, it's interesting, Robert, we looked for where are the comparable studies to the Voices of the Poor work that you did, or all the work that's come out about how people's own perceptions of, of poverty, where does that exist when it comes to inequality? We couldn't find it. We couldn't find studies that are really asking people themselves, how do you experience inequality in a popular form and really under, bring in their popular understandings and knowledge? We need much more understanding of how multiple inequalities are created, maintained, and reproduced. That's what Melissa was talking about, the intersection of inequalities. We need to understand the relationship between local and global forms of inequality and how they interact. We need much more research, not simply on understanding inequality, but as I said, on the pathways towards inequality. <coughs> and that's a different research question. When you say not what is inequality, the question what can we do about it is a different research question. And for all of this, we need new kind of syntheses, we believe, across all these literatures uh, that develop some broader theoretical conceptions of, of inequality. And with that, we also think it's not just a question of what we work on, but a question of how we work. And you, you might see that this is very much an IDS kind of a imprint on this. We don't think we can transform knowledge about inequality without a more transformative form of social science. So we don't think the problem is simply producing more studies on inequality by the same people. We actually think it's about transforming um, our understanding, looking at multiple forms of inequality through multiple approaches, approaches that go beyond quantification to combine qualitative participatory and many other methods, and approaches that go beyond just bringing social science knowledge into the picture but taking our engage excellence approach, engaging with other stakeholders, and through that, um, constructing both knowledge and action around what we do about these broad, this, this broad problem. So the co-construction of knowledge to challenge knowledge inequalities, to challenge inequality, is an absolutely critical agenda for us all. Brilliant, John. Thanks so much. Um, well, look, before we open up to questions and broader comments, we've got two of the report contributors who are going to offer us three minutes to give a highlight of what they said in their contribution. Um, so we'll broaden it out a bit. So, Richard, would you like to come yep. first and just tell us about the very, very nice piece of that you did? I was to look at how the UN had treated inequality over the years. And the answer was from 1945 right through to the SDGs. 1945, the Charter of the United Nations was very clear on equal rights and a strong emphasis on that equal rights uh, in many dimensions, but particularly emphasized between men and women. Then in the late 1940s, early 50s, strong work on development with a broader perspective, some elements <coughs> of inequality brought into that. And uh, in the development decade, 1960s, where there was an emphasis on development growth, accelerating growth, but with change. But the real big contribution, and I'm proud to say IDS was part of it, in 1970, 71, 72, ILO, the International Labour Office, did World Employment Programme with looking at the situation of unemployment and different pro employment problems in Colombia, in Sri Lanka, and in Kenya. The Colombia one uh, mission led by Dudley Sears, our director, said inequality was actually at the heart of the unemployment problem. Slightly different education inequalities in Sri Lanka, 
the, the uh, Kenya report said it was very much inequality there, but came up with the strategy redistribution from growth, which later in an idea study became redistribution <coughs> with growth, which was curiously done by the World Bank and IDS, about the only time uh, World Bank looks <coughs> at inequality issues. I just want to say that was a very important publication, sold 20,000 copies because the Swedish government made um, <coughs> subsidized copies. And so that had a big, I hope this will have the same. Then we go forward, I'm afraid the 1980s, the UN's voice was silenced a bit, the World Bank was dominant, inequality forgotten. Uh, and tell the Human Development Report of UNDP in 1990, then it started bringing back inequality. The MDGs, as emphasized, didn't really emphasize inequality in the full sense, certainly reduced poverty for people, very good. But it's the SDGs that have brought out the inequality goal 10, as uh, Melissa emphasized, which is not only leave no one behind, but look at the inequality extremes as this report. I hope this report is going to have a big impact, and it, it's beautifully produced. I just glanced at it there. It's got a range of almost all the social scientists you think you ought to know something about has found a place in writing, and I hope you can persuade UNESCO or one of the donors to sell it at a reasonable price so it really gets not only online, but hard copies, because it's well worth looking Thank you. The UN, my, my punchline was ahead of the curve on this issue. Yes. Very good. And um, tomorrow we're in Parliament launching a report on the past yeah. and future of the UN. And I hope yeah. Richard and I, we can make this point and keep yeah. the UN there. Good. So um, the other person who's now going to just have a few minutes is Sir Helen Asnin, who wrote a really nice piece in, in the forward-looking transformative pathway section of the report on... Um, gender and political inclusion, so picking up on some of these other aspects. So, Sahela, over to you. I think for, given this year, gender and women in politics has been so much on the agenda, that in November we might get our first female US president. Uh, this is an interesting piece, in if you look at it in that light. Um, so, when, when I was asked to look at political inclusion and gender, given that women's presence in politics and also women's ability to influence policy outcomes, um, there is inequality there. So if we look at what is the current situation in the world, are we doing better than what we were doing 20 years ago? Yes, we are, partly thanks to quotas and affirmative actions and party lists and other measures. Uh, they have gotten women in, not in the numbers that we'd like to see, but women have a seat at the table. But having a seat at the table doesn't necessarily mean that you have an equal voice. And also, it's mediated by other forms of inequalities, particularly social and economic. So if you look at the barriers uh, for women to be able to enter politics and access policy uh, spaces, the barriers are the four Cs. It's about women having confidence. Second is about cash. Politics requires a lot of money if you're campaigning, running, and trying to win elections. So obviously, class comes in very strongly there. It's also about um, care issues, childcare, elderly care. Women generally take most of the burden of that. And it's also about culture. 
I mean, political culture, if it's very violent, it's difficult. It's also culture inside political parties in terms of locker room talks that we heard about. I don't need to mention the name we heard, but heard it from. So, you know, there are all these barriers. But in spite of all that, we see women present in larger numbers than we have seen before. So once women have gotten in, what has happened? Do they promote gender equity concerns? It, well, the answer is the evidence is mixed. It depends on do you have a critical mass inside whichever space you're looking at, but it also depends on do you have a very strong autonomous women's movement in that country. Uh, this is statistically actually proven looking at 70 countries and where you have strong autonomous women's movement linking to the insiders inside the state, that's when policies actually change. Obviously, there's, of course, the challenge of once you change the policies, do they get implemented or not? That's where sort of having uh, broader coalitions become important. The, one of the key issues where the jury's still out and we still don't know how it would work out <coughs> is that uh, it's difficult to promote gender equity issues because women are not a homogeneous bloc. Obviously, you want to be re-elected again as politicians. You will cater to different types of interests, not just gender equity interests. So does, it matter, does gender equity matter in politics becomes very important. Uh, what also is very important in this regard is uh, just because you have women there doesn't necessarily mean that it depends on who is sitting there. So if you have women coming from an elite background in the political spaces, that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll promote uh, interests of uh, women coming from very poor uh, background and their interests. So it's important to look at those issues. And obviously, there are many gaps in terms of the knowledge that we produce, and these are in four areas. One, we don't have a lot of evidence other than from South Asia, so looking at women in politics in the Asian region. Second is looking at levels, systematic evidence on what happens at the local level, not just parliament. Uh, third is looking at other in governance institutions, so not just the parliament, a lot of research on parliament, but not necessarily on the executive cabinet and how they're gender biased and how informal norms play. And lastly, not just looking at once quote, you have quotas and women are in and what women have done, but trying to look at when policy changes happen, so working backwards and having comparative case studies on it to look at what worked. When do women become an important political constituency? Why do certain issues matter? What are the terms of inclusion for women in political spaces? So unpacking those become very important, and particularly informal norms and the backdoor deals and how women participate in dirty politics, actually, and how they maneuver. Yeah. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Great.